Greetings, Yellow Parallers. This is Jeff Oki bringing you the special episode with Bao Nguyen, director of the documentary on Bruce Lee, Be Water. We just wanted to let you know, um, we'll of course be back next week to talk about the protests and more. Stay tuned. We want to remind all our listeners, as ever, to do, read, learn, donate, protest, whatever you can to support Black Lives Matter. In the meantime, please enjoy this still timely interview with Bao Nguyen uh, as we discuss his film, The Life of Bruce Lee, and Bao's work. Enjoy. Welcome to the Yellow Peril Podcast, where we help you navigate the perilous world of Asian American identity through pop culture, sex, politics, and whatever other random stuff is currently distracting us. Welcome back, Yellow Perilers. Greetings to all you Nguyen's, all you Lee's, all you Bui's. I'm Jeff Oki. This is Bang. This is Chang. This week, we have a really special guest who has his new documentary film premiering on ESPN on June 7th. The film's called Be Water. We're super excited to have him here. He's a friend of the pod. Chung has known him for a really long time. I've gotten to know him for the past few years. We have Bao Nguyen with us today. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Yep, I had nothing better to do on my son. <laughs> there we yes. go. The, the truth. Good. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way we get anybody on the podcast, duh. <laughs> But um, I just wanted to say thanks again for for joining us and congrats on so many things like you're signed to CAA, your film's coming out in ESPN, you made a move to LA, many things are happening. So congrats, very exciting. Where to even begin? <laughs> I'm sure you're doing a lot of press already for the the movie. How's that been going? Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's kind of it's a weird time to do press because the world is like burning around us. Yes. But it's been good. I've been trying to kind of steer the conversation maybe towards how the film is relevant. You know, the film's about Bruce Lee. It's also about his relationships with a lot of his students, such mm-hmm. as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and just talking about how, you know, aptly enough, like how Yellow Peril has, you know, led to a lot of things that he had to deal with as a martial artist, as a Hollywood star, and how that kind of helped him flourish his relationships with a lot of African-American students for him to kind of understand, like, what what was going on in America in the 1960s, especially with the civil rights movement. Totally. I think a lot of the conversation these days is, you know, Asian-Americans have to stand up and say something, especially because of what the black community has done for us. And obviously I haven't seen the film, but I've seen trailers and parts, and there's certainly a part where... We tried to get you to go to Sundance and party with us. (laughs) I really tried, but uh, my fiancé was in town at the time, so couldn't make that happen. Anyways, I don't regret that at all. (laughs) But in the trailer or one segment where they're talking about how Bruce Lee would watch a lot of the footage of like Muhammad Ali and he knew Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and would watch athletes. Yeah, I think that speaks to like what importance the black culture played in Bruce's life as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely kind of a mutual appreciation. There's a lot of talk, obviously, about cultural appropriation in many ways between Asian and African-American communities. And Kung Fu martial arts is like one way where people think 
there is appropriation, but I, for the most part, I think, you know, there's that mutual appreciation, that mutual kind of connection and finding ways to, to learn and grow as a community together. I think that's one of the things I learned from Bruce Lee. It's like, yeah, he was absorbing Muhammad Ali. He wasn't trying to challenge him. He was absorbing what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar taught him about the civil rights movement. At the same time, Kareem was um, learning from Bruce martial arts. I mean, one kind of factoid or scene that we left out of the film is Kareem. We asked Kareem, who were like, what did you learn from Bruce? And he said, well, like, the two most important and best teachers in my life were John Wooden and Bruce Lee, which is an interesting point to make. And yeah, I think people often think of Bruce Lee as this, like, really arrogant guy and who was mostly, a, you know, in addition to being a martial artist, in addition to being a movie star, he was a teacher to a lot of, like, Hollywood celebrities, but he was very much a student of, of the people that he met, and I think that was one of the things that we want audiences to take away with this film. Totally. I wanted to emphasize the fact that this film is different than any Bruce Lee story you might have seen before, but what would you say... Like, what differentiates it from, obviously, the biopic and a lot of other bad films? <laughs> I know Vubay wanted to bring a few films that involve Bruce Lee or his story or the myths about him as well. What does your film bring that differentiates it from the others? I mean, again, as you mentioned, there's like tons of stories and narratives and films about Bruce Lee or with Bruce Lee in it. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of assumptions that people make about Bruce Lee's life. And I wanted to come into this film knowing that there's, you know, his canon is quite extensive and, and a lot of people have seen the films and the documentaries, but do they view him in the lens of being kind of an Asian American figure or do they just view him as just being Bruce Lee? Right. The le the myth and the legend. Exactly. Right. And like before he was Bruce Lee, he was like this Chinese kid coming to America with, you know, with a hundred dollars in his pocket without knowing many people. And so how, how did he kind of approach his stance as an immigrant, as an Asian, Asian. Well, technically, he's Asian American. He was born in the U.S. Right, but went back. Went back to Hong Kong. Went to Hong Kong. Went to. Uh, I, yeah. I, I really. I saw your twenty three and Me short. You're like, I don't say I went back. I went to. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Sorry. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I think there's for like the hardcore Bruce Lee fans. I mean, I had people at Sundance come up to me and they're like, I've seen every Bruce Lee film like forty times over every documentary like 10 times over but I wanted to say like your film felt very personal and it felt like it kind of encapsulated all these ideas into to one film and I think for a lot of people that don't make documentaries they think that documentaries have to be definitive and you know, they're just one version of, of a larger narrative right right and so yeah as for me as an Asian American born and raised in America like I wanted to use that as my portal into Bruce Lee like how 
how is he viewed? How does that relate to my experience feeling like an other? And I think one of the important things that we have to realize is that Bruce Lee wasn't, you know, he had to go through a lot of struggle, rejection from Hollywood, systemic racism that's built into American culture and society. So how do we kind of come to that moment where Bruce Lee is rejected by Hollywood? Like, why is he rejected? This is Bruce Lee. He's like the most charismatic person you would you can think of nowadays right. but at that time it was um you know it was just the beginning of the vietnam war and you know a decade earlier was the korean war a decade before that was world war Two. so the idea of the asian was very much cemented as as a villain right mm-hmm. uh, as the enemy and going back to you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and just the bachelor society that was created because of, of, of you know, the railroad, railroad workers and then Yellow Peril and all these ideas kind of come into play in Bruce Lee's story. And I was very adamant about putting those aspects of Asian-American history into this film. You know, the Vietnamese-American poet Ocean Vuong talks about this idea of coming of history. It's like you need to understand the things that came before to understand that where you are now, right? And for an ESPN audience, they probably don't know. I don't want to, like, stereotype, but for, <laughs> for, I mean, for, like, a broader audience. Sure. That is an Asian American, they probably don't know a lot of the nuance of, of, you know, what it means to be Asian and what, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was and, and the model minority myth. So I wanted to kind of like feed the vegetables into the dessert of Bruce Lee in a way. I like it. Yeah. How much of what you're talking about is actually happening because of the amount of time between his death and when you're making the film? I know with The Last Dance, which is the last great ESPN documentary, a lot of the reason why it's great is because we've had 20 years to ponder sort of the significance of Michael Jordan and the Bulls team. You know, how different would it have been if this documentary came out 5, 10, 15, 20 years after his death versus now in the middle of the time when, you know, we just got a bunch of followers because I'm sure they think that we created that Yellow Peril supports Black Panther logo that's been going around. Uh, but that's, but that's, you know, that's been going around for a long time. Okay, told me that's why that's why I'm on the show because I was going to get a free poster. <laughs> well, we can we can make the poster, but you know that that image and that 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 sort of term has been around for a lot longer than than this this program. So you know how much of what you're talking about is really there because of the relevant times right now. I mean, it's it's hard to say because I think every generation has a different entry point into Bruce Lee, right? I was born a decade after Enter the Dragon came out, so I never was going to see his films in theaters in Chinatown like I know like the older generation had. And even, um, you know, when we were editing the film, we edited the film in London, and this, you know, young young person was working as a receptionist at her post-production studio. She's like in her early 20s. And she asked me, oh, you know, why... What project are you working on? I was like, oh, I'm doing a film about Bruce Lee. We're just finishing it up here. And she's like, oh, the the, the Kung Fu guy, right? I was like, yeah. And and she's like, oh, is he going to come in and watch the film? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, everyone has a different assumption of what Bruce Lee is and what he stands for and who he was. And wow, I think, like, for Michael Jordan, for The Last Dance, like... 
people don't they might know him for the meme nowadays like the crying <laughs> more than they know him as the chicago bulls champion or i mean people might know him for like playing for the washington wizards or something there's or he has shoes yeah he's a shoemaker yeah he's exactly and yeah i expect to be to have like tons of Bruce Lee documentaries after this one comes out again. Like I'm not trying to make a definitive film and I just felt just the best one. <laughs> that's subjective, right? <laughs> but I would say that I think I wanted to tell Bruce Lee's story because I felt that I just didn't know the person. I knew the name Bruce Lee, but I, I wanted to unpack the myth as, as Oki was saying, like, it's it's all mythology for me and a lot of people in my generation and um, I think the time is ripe a little bit now because of you know the inclusion that we're having in Hollywood uh, or the it's as growing inclusion I would say it's still a, a struggle but there there's been a lot of conversation about representation and and equity and like it's still hard for an actor actress of color to make it in Hollywood today like how did Bruce Lee make it and so that was that was a question that I wanted to answer and that was the lens that I was coming in with the film it's not like I'm not going to touch it's not a touch point on every single aspect of his life or it's not a sensation film where we reveal something that's like mind-blowing I think right. there's expectation now with a lot of especially documentaries that they have to have this huge twist in a way but why can't you just make a film that has a great story that stands on its own as a great film and that's relevant and feels honest and authentic and I for me I wanted to make an honest film like nothing is dishonest about this film in my opinion this relationship with Muhammad Ali this this is really fascinating I, I didn't know that was there you know if you go to the Muhammad Ali Museum in Louisville you'll see a lot of references to the Vietnam War and, and actual Vietnamese people that he references you know uh, I'm going to ask you a very loaded question and I really hope I get the right answer but you know Bruce Lee was alive today like how how much of an inspiration how much of a Muhammad Ali, could he be for the Asian American community? Like what you're, what you've been describing so far, it sounds like there's a potential of him sort of being the the great yellow hope for all of us, and could provide the bridge between us and a Muhammad Ali. We, you know, we've never really had somebody like that. How much of how much of his inspiration can live on? Well, I mean, the interesting point. I asked this question of like everyone I interview too, and um, they they're so close to Bruce Lee that they can't see kind of the legacy in a way they they think of it like oh would i be doing a podcast with bruce lee on a sunday afternoon instead of like what his greater impact is like he would just be like shooting the shit with them right and you know i think he has become our our heroic myth right there's no one that's filled the shoes there hasn't been that asian american mythology the same way that there has been kind of like like the american frontier or like or even like with kind of perpetuating not perpetuating but i'm saying like showing the heroic myth of of the jewish people out there the holocaust coming to america and things like that it's right. and bruce lee and his death his early death he's been able to become that myth like <laughs> you know it's a little dorky to say like he's basically became batman instead of bruce wayne like he's <laughs> achieved that elemental status by becoming the batman 
right? And I think it's interesting to think of how he would have lived going forward, and it's hard to answer that question. And no one wanted to answer that hypothetical because um, they... You know, I could see that they thought, oh, of course he would be pushing like Asian roles because he would branch out beyond just being the martial artist. He would have tried to, you know, he had the aspiration to be a leading man. But this, these all came from very personal conversations that people had. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, he's become the symbol. So that has a lot of power to it beyond being the man and there's also that you know you never know if he would have been turned into like a Marlon Brando type of person where he gets fat and unattractive and if Marlon Brando like a falling star yeah or he's become more of a James Dean figure right right but I mean to answer your specifically about being kind of the Muhammad Ali I think Muhammad Ali is like one of a kind in many ways and just from my research, I imagine he would have just knowing his personality and like his determination and believing in himself, he would have kind of pushed that along. I mean, he was doing it indirectly by taking on roles that were, you know, not the sidekick, not the villain when he was doing like small bit roles in Hollywood before his Hong Kong career. But I think, he, you know, his plan after Enter the Dragon was to, to kind of bring a lot of these Hong Kong film industry people to, to Hollywood. And yeah, he, there's definitely that tragedy, his personal tragedy, that he wasn't able to do that. And it could have propelled representations a lot further. And sooner, right. Exactly. That's probably yeah. the most, you know, if you were to try to think of it logically, like representation for sure would have just exploded and snowballed because Enter the Dragon was such a hit, right? And Hollywood thinks in terms of, of box office. It's, it's show business, right? And so that would have just like, just imagine if Crazy Rich Asians came out in the 70s. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I fantasize about is just if he were still around, if he had lived longer, what strides it could have done sooner. That's all. Yeah. That's all, right? I mean, of course, his family wants him. That is a hard question to ask everybody that's close to him. But maybe we wouldn't have, like, Jackie Chan, right? No Rush Hour films. Right. Like, he'd only be big in Hong Kong still, <laughs> you know, or something. You know? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's hard to say how, how representation would have changed. I mean, Hollywood was so systematically racist, too, right? Yeah. So we, we imagine, oh... Maybe the metrics of the box office would have changed. Right. They would just pigeonhole him, though, maybe, right? It's like, cool, you can only do this. Yeah, Yeah, maybe he would have. Exactly. They would have never gave him a chance to be the dramatic star. But True. Yeah, but who knows now? I hate to bring it up. It doesn't seem appropriate, but there's this new show on on Netflix called Hollywood, and it's basically a, a what if Hollywood got more racially diverse like decades ago. And it's very odd seeing the te- the context of an Asian American actress and an African American actress uh, trying to get roles in like I think it's the 30s or 40s. So it's like a fairy tale. And they use words like people of color, which is really <laughs> weird. It's just it's it's like a science fiction show, exactly what you just described. Twilight Zone, really. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I have a question. So I, I feel like Bows, I've heard a lot of your interviews and I've heard you speak publicly a lot about this film. And you're sick of it. And I think you've been really good about. Oh, no. Uh, pretty <laughs> sick of it. 
Oh, she would stop. Should we have a disclaimer that Chung's my lawyer, by the way? I was going to say that the big top of the show is like a uh, disclaimer. Chung is on retainer. With us. Are you getting paid for this? Yeah. You should be. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, Bill, every in that uh, five minute increments. So let's keep it going. No, seriously, though, I think you've been really good at articulating the themes of this film and, and sort of the connection with, you know, the civil rights movement with the, the Asian American community. I'm just curious, like, could you describe like viscerally what it was like for you to get this project in the first place? And did you have like a fully formed idea of those themes and those connections that you wanted to make with this film? So the project came about about five years ago, actually. That's when I had the idea initially. And it was kind of coming off my first feature documentary. It was, was called Life in New York. It's about Saturday Night Live. And with that film, it was... Again, you're taking like a iconic American cultural institution, but I wanted to find like my own in on it. And it was more like, how do I look at another, like again, Saturday Night Live, we looked at it like as me as a little immigrant kid, like watching Saturday Night Live. And I used Saturday Night Live as a way to, it was like a, a view into American pop culture and celebrity culture, political culture that I wasn't getting through like my parents, because they didn't care about that stuff in America. Right. They were just trying to like get some money. <laughs> paid. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, that was my lens into America. So that film was about, yeah, how is SNL like a portal and a, a, the anthropological look into SNL in a way. And us with the fortune of doing that type of film, I was like, I want to take all these kind of big American myths that people think they know about and kind of make it more personal and honest. So at the time, you know, there was like the A.B. Winehouse documentary, like the biopic documentary was a hot thing. So I was like, oh, so who would I want to do like a bio documentary about? And Bruce Lee was definitely up there. So, yeah, it was that was kind of it wasn't like a aha moment. Well, the aha moment came like a couple of years ago when we weren't getting the traction we wanted in terms of financing. And my producer was like, oh, why don't we approach ESPN about it? And I, I love ESPN. I mean, I love their 30 for 30 series. I think that's really smart, very director driven. But I never thought of Bruce Lee in kind of as a, as a sports figure, as kind of the first thing when I think about Bruce Lee. And, you know, like with ESPN, they always try to like put sports as kind of, in, especially in the 30 for 30 series, as a background to more it's more of a social issue story or something that talks about like race or something deeper. And I was like, okay, that's exactly the type of film I want to make about Bruce Lee. And I mean, the film was, again, I wanted to use Bruce Lee as a vessel for talking about like what it means to be Asian American, what it means to be the other, what it means to be an immigrant American coming and like having to show yourself in a way. And I was like, who's the more most quintessential Asian American is definitely Bruce Lee. It's funny, like a couple of days ago, I had a panel at for Disney and the director of development at ESPN was mentioning like he had, you know, he was the one who greenlit the project and he was also on the panel and he had reread my original treatment that I had proposed a couple of years ago. And he was amazed on how close the original treatment was to the final film. And I guess that just shows that I, had a very specific vision 
I wanted to to utilize for the for the final product. Right. A part of me thinks though too that maybe he was like, "Huh, an Asian American story that no producers wanted to change into something else." <laughs> like, let's make Bruce Lee white. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like or let him get beat up by by Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, you know, what I mean? maybe that was his shock. But no, that's amazing that it stuck to so closely to the treatment to the original treatment. Yeah, I mean, what what are your thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I, I, I mean, are you were you a fan of Tarantino? Are you still? Are you just anti now? Or like, what are what are your, your hot take? I guess <laughs> it's such a kind of politically sensitive issue nowadays. Like trying to to separate the artists and the art. I don't. I you know I don't think Tarantino had any kind of ill intent, and I sure. I love Tarantino as a filmmaker, and I think he's done so much for Asian cinema, bringing like Park Chan Wook films and just executive producing a lot of you know Asian films and bringing them to a a, a larger like American audience, but. You know, I, I obviously didn't love the depiction of Bruce Lee in that film. Sure. And it's funny because the film, I was, again, I was editing in London and the film hadn't come out yet in London, but it opened in America and everyone was texting me. It's like, what do you think about the film? What do you think about the scene? I was like, I'm like editing, I'm, like, I'm trying to make my own movie. I'm not like, I can't, I don't have time to go watch a movie. I wish I did. But then like, yeah, I finally got a chance to see it. Like, because everyone was texting me. I was like, okay, once it came out, I was like, I don't want to spoil it. Like, because I thought, you know, I thought what would have been a really interesting angle on that whole kind of time in Hollywood with Bruce Lee is that, you know, Bruce Lee was good friends with Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Like, what if Bruce Lee came to their house and he was the one who kicked all their asses? Like, that would have been so badass. And that would have just... That would have been awesome. Or yeah. at least help. Like, exactly. help Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah, that would have made uh, so much more sense. Like, that's, that would have been my director's cut of what's put on time if he came to Hell yeah. And, you know, I... I I, w- I made films in Vietnam where there's like a lot of artistic censorship and I would never try to censor an artist, a filmmaker for the story that he wanted to tell. So I always think of that as, you know, Once Upon a Time is Tarantino's version. It's Tarantino's very heightened version of, of any story and it's a fictionalized version of Bruce Lee while, you know, Be Water is very different. It's very much a more humanistic story, a wholer version, a more complete version of Bruce Lee as a, as a person and not as a caricature. Totally. One of the interesting things too is like for the people who aren't offended by, by the depiction and just defend Tarantino, I think you have to look at the whole scope of like Asian Americans in cinema. And this is going to, you know, Bruce Lee as a character, as an Asian American and to 2019, there's not that many Asian Americans that have that much, you know, actors or characters that are going to be part of like film canon the way that Bruce Lee's depiction will be in the the larger scope of things, right? Right. So he's going to be in a way like the same way that Mickey Rooney was a caricature or, you know, all these different depictions of the Asian American male. That is going to be solidified in Asian American film history and for better or for worse. Right. Long Duck Dong and... Exactly. 
data and good, yeah, immortalized in film in a way we might not necessarily want them to be immortalized. Exactly. Completely. Did, uh, I have a question about that though. Um, did Tarantino's depiction and you finding out about it during post-production for Be Water, did that inform the, the rest of the fi- your film in any way or affect it? Not at all. Yeah. No, it's, like, yes, the director of development at ESPN was saying, like, the film was, I had a very specific story I wanted to tell. And, I mean, there's interlapping ideas in my film and Tarantino's film, but we, it, it never informed the way that I was going to tell my Bruce Lee story. Vube wanted to bring up Birth of the Dragon. Have you heard of that movie? Yeah, yeah, I know about that film. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, but we're going to give you two minutes to talk about it. But I mean, first of all, I, I don't know why these people just don't ask just their Asian friend about like, oh, do you think this is a good idea? And just like run it by them. What, what, and then sort of the second thing is, if you can expand a little bit on sort of why, why do people want to just use a one dimensional Bruce Lee? I mean, it just seems like there's so much more that you can like, I have no interest in watching another fictional Bruce Lee thing. I would love to watch five documentaries like yours before I see another depiction of Bruce Lee. Well, I have to say, I haven't seen the film just because I know what it's about and I had no interest in seeing it. But I think he even means in regards to like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? But I feel like they use Bruce Lee to show Brad Pitt's character more than anything, right? Yeah, it's a narr- it's like a narrative device, right? To to make Brad Pitt's character look better and spoiler, so he can kick everyone's yeah. ass at the end of the film. Brad right. Pitt's character, and yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, people use the mythology of Bruce Lee, and they, there's so much you know about Bruce Lee that he's he's a guy who's going to kick some ass that he's. He's like a martial arts master. So, again, like what I was saying about everyone has their portal into Bruce Lee, maybe that was that screenwriter's portal, like thinking as a young white kid, I was inspired by Bruce Lee, and that's what's going to get me into martial arts. I think it's more of a marketing problem with that film. It's like Birth of a Dragon just sounds like it should be about Bruce Lee. If they said... <laughs> yes, it should. <laughs> if it was not something else, it's like Joe from Wisconsin and Bruce Lee is in it. And I'm sure Bruce Lee's like depiction was not derogatory. It was pretty probably celebratory in some way. But don't use Bruce Lee's to try to sell your film. Right. I mean, Vubing and I want to thank you for not using the word dragon or tiger in your your film title as well. <laughs> we've been noticing a trend. Yeah, here's the thing. I, I'm going to make every single Asian American actor, director, and producer promise not to use the word dragon or tail. No, tiger. In their film, and also, or tiger, and also promise not to depict Bruce Lee. Like, can we all just agree to, like, not, if somebody, if Hollywood comes to you and says, hey, can you play Bruce Lee? You're just like, no, I'm good. I signed this pact when I was 22. You're going to. You're going to put me out of work because my next few projects involve two. <laughs> I was going to say, well, fictional, fictional Bruce Lee. Really? I can't, um, I can't talk about certain yeah. things. But, oh, okay. But the, the dragon part. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I did have a question like, yeah. <laughs> so clearly you have a lot of projects lined up. Are there ones that you can, that you can talk about? Or stories or people's stories that you want to feature next? Like a dream project that you can talk about? 
Because it seems like you got one done. Like you, this was kind of a dream project, right? Like you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, there's a making a film about Bruce Lee as an Asian American. I feel like I might get beat up. Yeah. Because <laughs> I got to make that film. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to talk about projects that aren't like signed, sealed, delivered. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, so your lawyer will. My lawyer is going to come in. My lawyer is coming in now. I want to clarify: Are you asking <laughs> about projects that he is currently working on, or are you asking about what? potential projects that he would like to work on? Why did we invite his lawyer? Seriously, why yeah. did we invite his lawyer? I don't want to talk about anything that is in development. I want to talk about hypothetical things like, oh man, okay, I really want to do this. It's not on my docket. Exactly. Totally hypothetical. Okay. I will yeah. mention one. Yes. That would get me assassinated or murdered. I'm not. Okay. Love it. Famous enough to yeah. be assassinated. <laughs> right. You have to be famous to be assassinated, right? That's like the meaning of assassination. I guess so. Okay. But I would be. You're so almost funny. there. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Ho Chi Minh, <laughs> he, before he became this revolutionary leader, he was a cook on a cruise ship. So he traveled around the world and he spent a year in New York and he lived in Harlem for a year in the 1920s. And he heard Marcus Garvey speak and he was very influenced by the Harlem Renaissance and Marcus Garvey. Wow. And what? I knew this. But you didn't know this is moving? No. <laughs> This is amazing. Wait, no one take this film. <laughs> yet. No, the lawyer is here. You should tell Chong, tell what Bao needs to say so that uh, that's his <laughs> legally. Can he copyright it right now? It's already been copyrighted. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> and if anyone if anyone attempts to uh, infringe on my client's uh, intellectual property, we will pursue uh, all uh, legal remedies that are available against available to us under the law. There you go. That's why that's why Chung's here. Can our editor like speed through like him like Chung saying all that like a lawyer like during those commercials? Like fine print on a radio. That'd be pretty funny. Yeah. But I did it. Not available in California, Texas, or Colorado. This is going to be edited? I've been speaking so, like... You're so worried. It will be edited to make us sound better and faster. Okay, got it. <laughs> Don't okay. worry. Okay. Nothing is technically cut out unless we say, cut this out. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't censor me. <laughs> Actually, you might have to... We have to clarify because every time somebody says Ho Chi Minh, our editor, like, replaces it with Saigon. So in this case, it's just Ho Chi Minh, the person. So please, yeah. please don't change the words. <laughs> I want to make a uh, no, Did you know that Saigon was hanging out with Marcus Garvey? Oh, the yeah. rapper? The rapper yeah, Saigon? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, that, I think that would just be like an amazing film, like in the vein of like. It sounds amazing already. Motorcycle yeah. diaries. And the problem is, I would either I would get murdered by like the Vietnamese OC community or the Vietnamese communist government. So Or both. Yeah. Right. At the same or time. Or both. Or maybe, uh, you know, they'll reconcile. You'll bring them together. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or you I can, it. I mean, you could just have a, a white guy play Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> I want John Malkovich to play Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I didn't know any of that, so that story That's already amazing. sounds amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Copyrighted, trademarked, all that. Are there photos of that? Can can that be the cover of our new podcast? <laughs> yeah. 
There's like young Ho Chi Minh. I don't know if there's pictures of him in hanging out in Brooklyn. <laughs> That'd be hilarious, sitting on a stoop. I read somewhere that he, during his travels, he ended up in France too. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. He spent uh, a lot of time in France. He speaks French fluently. There's a few interviews of him speaking French. That's pretty wild. Yeah. I guess I just want to dedicate the rest of the show. You know, again, everyone check out the film. We're super excited for it. But we're also here to talk about Bao. (laughs) And I guess you bring up, you know, first of all, if you made that film, there's two different worlds in your life, I guess, that would affect you, right? And we want to sort of talk about you were born and raised in the U.S., and then you moved to Vietnam to do a lot of your work as well. We're always curious about, like some of the adversity you faced in either place, the differences, the pros and cons, living and working here and living and working in Vietnam. Any glaring ones or any funny ones that you found? Or Yeah, where, where were you born and raised first? I was born and raised right outside Washington, D.C. in this town called Silver Spring, Maryland, which is like a super diverse town, like top five diverse towns under like a population of 300,000 or something. And I... <laughs> So fast forward to Vietnam, I guess. <laughs> I was bored and then nothing happened much for the next 28 years. Um, I guess Vietnam is it's, it's growing in terms of the film industry. When I first started working there in 2010, I worked on my friend's film, Saigon Electric. My friend's name is Stefan Gauger. He sadly passed away a few years ago, but he invited me to shoot the film with him. It was the summer during, I was in graduate film school. And yeah, they were making about eight to 10 local films a year Jeez. at the time. And now, like last year, they've, they're like making like 55 local films. Damn. So the exponential growth of like the film industry in Vietnam is, is purely evident in those numbers. It's very young population in Vietnam. Most mm-hmm. of 50% is under the age of uh, 35. Wow. And so there's like this hunger, uh, this dynamism, this youthfulness that I think kind of permeates through all parts of the culture. And it definitely shows in the film industry. I worked on, I produced a film that came out last year at the Busan Film Festival. And it's made by this young director. It's called Rom. And he worked on it for seven years, a feature, like fiction film. And it was very kind of old school, like Cassavetti style, the way he shot it, because he, it was 86 shoot days over the course of a year and a half. He would like direct a commercial. He would then like go on the weekends and like get his friends to like shoot the film or shoot like a scene, like one day at a time. And that type of like attitude and mentality was really inspiring for someone like me coming from a more kind of uniform system in America. And I was like, that's kind of reminds me of that, you know, old American independent spirit of like, yeah, Cassavetes or Soderbergh. And that's a major difference. But at the same time, that film had some censorship problems 
And I think that's the main obstacle for filmmakers, for artists in Vietnam, is that there's a lot of censorship and there's not a uniformity in terms of the standards of why they, why the government censors. And I think if you look at countries like Iran, there are more kind of stricter rules, or I shouldn't say stricter rules, but there are rules that are written down and there's some uniformity to it. So that type of restraint actually gives a lot of Iranian filmmakers, you know, creativity because they can see the restraint and then they can work a way around it. But with a Vietnamese filmmaker, they have no idea what's going to be censored or not. Like right. I had a friend who did a film that was like a gay romance and they thought like, okay, some of the gay scenes would be censored. But um, apparently the only scene that was censored is like, there's like a family altar and the family is having dinner and like the chicken on the altar falls on the ground. And someone takes the chicken and puts it back on the altar and the censor wanted to cut out the chicken falling off the altar, like, because they were like, that's disrespectful to the family. (laughs) Wow. But I mean, in some ways, at least there was some progressive stuff happening and they were just oddly strict in a different way. I guess so. It's very temperamental, the censor. Like, there's, you can get, you you know, something within the Vietnamese film communities that they try to get a specific censors because they know which censor is more lenient. Oh, wow. So it's like, yeah, I want the guy who's just reading the newspaper on his iPad the whole time versus the guy who's like basically like ghost directing and saying, oh, like these Americans need to look more villainous in in this scene. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy that they have that. It's like getting a judge in court. It's like, no, you don't want that judge. He's not going to let you off easy with that crime. Well, I mean, that kind of exists in America, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in in America, I I, I hear stories about them just throwing things that are just further beyond what they think that they can get approved just to make the the stuff that they want to get in get in (laughs) no we we do that we We, we always ask every guest this especially people in the entertainment industry which is of course one of the focuses of this podcast but what do your parents think of everything (laughs) i mean we know you uh you were initially in law school you you took the lsat no i didn't that's oh that article's wrong no, the article. Oh, you were studying for it. I was studying for the LSAT. Okay, uh, not when you were taking it. Got it. No, no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to become a lawyer for the longest time, mm. and um, and I decided not to. Just to fast forward, my parents. I, you know, I think they're proud of me now. It took a long time to get to that point. There's two moments where I realized my parents were proud of me. The first time, I should say proud of me about being a filmmaker, right? (laughs) Really sad if they were never proud of me. But I mean... (laughs) But who knows? uh, knows, knows, (laughs) So my first film, Live from New York, opened the Tribeca Film Festival. And... um, with the Tribeca Film Festival for their opening night film, they have it at the Beacon Theater, which is this beautiful theater uptown. And it's 3,000 seats. It's like four balconies. And it's because it's a gala screening, the tickets cost like 300 something dollars a ticket. Damn. And um, 
I, you know, I flew my parents over. They were in Vietnam at the, living in Vietnam at the time. And when my mom was there, like right before the movie started, my sister, who she was sitting next to, was telling me how like my mom was like counting how many people were in the theater and then looked at the ticket prices like, oh shit, that was going to be rich. <laughs> That you were getting paid for. I thought I was getting all the money. <laughs> I was like, I wish that's how Hollywood works. I love it. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think that was, you know, the monetary value of being a filmmaker, the <laughs> fake monetary value she thought right. made me her proud. And then um, another time around, I, I, I finally kind of got the guts to interview them about their story coming over as as refugees and this film that played last year called where are you really from and my mom was after we i finished the interview she's like when are you going to make a bigger film about me like right it's very like oh yeah i want the whole story told now yeah uh, I'll, I'll i'll produce it i'll finance it and i was like okay i guess now she's gone to that next step where she's like okay Bao is the keeper of my story, so I must be proud of him in a way. Right. But before you were like hesitant to ask them about that story, I heard you say that in another interview, I think. But because you thought they didn't want to talk about it. But now they seem like, oh, maybe this is, do they think it's like important for you to know? It's an important story to share? No, they just want to talk about it. They're just total ham. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm on screen. Yeah. I think most children of that generation are a bit hesitant to ask that story because it is so traumatic for a lot of our parents and our aunts, uncles, grandparents. So that's maybe some kind of internal trauma that we create for ourselves that we don't want to know it in a way because it maybe makes us feel closer to our parents and makes us feel guilty of like all the times that we were arguing with them. And right. Squandered their hard work. <laughs> yeah. When they're like, do you know what I did to come up? And it's like, no, I don't, it's a need to know basis. And maybe I shouldn't need to know because I still want to pretend like we should have a normal relationship. Sure. Your parents moved back to, to Vietnam. Are they there now? My mom is in Maryland because she kind of got stuck there because of covid my dad is in vietnam he's been living there for about 20 years now hmm. wow so is that one of the reasons why you moved to, to vietnam too or hell no <laughs> <laughs> uh, no i mean it's nice to be closer to my parents it's funny i probably see them less now that i live in the same city as them how far how far do you live from them what districts are you guys in i mean i'm like 10 minutes from my dad's Walking? He doesn't want to see me. <laughs> I'm like, do you want to go have lunch? She's like, no, I'm going to the casino today. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like living in uh, in Saigon? What what district are you in? I'm in one. I'm like in the thick of things, like in, on Winhui Street, which is basically the same as like living in Times Square or LA Live on New Year's Day, 365 days a year. Um, but it's there's an energy to it. There's like a nonchalance to it that you know. I used to live in New York, so I have to kind of let down my guard and understand you're in a totally different place. But yeah, it just feels just very, as I said before, dynamic and growing. And it's, you know, I've parted with Jung there. He can attest to the type of nightlife that happens there and just the... It's not bad. 
very stop it. I thought he was going to give a very like I can neither confirm nor deny very l- legal. <laughs> I think the whole like lawyer thing gets kind of old after a while, so I'm just going to be a normal person now. Oh, uh, sorry, that, sorry. That's okay. okay, cool, good. That, that is feelings. <laughs> Does that mean you hung out with our college buddy Tango then and experienced the whole Tango experience? Victor, he goes by Victor over there. You know, you you know Victor, right? Victor Trung. Victor Trung. He's the guy that used to bully Bang in college. <laughs> He's one of one of one of the guy one of the guys that used to bully Vubang in college. Is that why we didn't hang out with him, Vubang? He's from the West Coast. Yeah, but he lives there now. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 been there for for twenty years because he can't really make it in America. So I don't like that assumption of people who move over to. I don't like that either. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about tell me about that assumption. Talk, let's talk about that. What's the assumption? That people can't who can't make it who are like interns in America come over <laughs> to Vietnam to be like film directors or CEOs <laughs> or something and be part of the whole expat community. I mean, I I would I don't like to generalize, so I mean, I don't think I'm like that. <laughs> and I'm not implying that you're like that no, because no, no, you've been to ESPN, so <laughs> only only because of that. There's certainly people like that, and I think they come in with you know, chip on their shoulder and a lot of arrogance because they think they're going to come and like teach Vietnamese locals like, oh yeah, this is how you really do it. And I think that type of arrogance is worse than like white expat arrogance in many ways. Worse? Because hmm. <laughs> there's like, there's there's an ignorance to the white expat thing. Hmm. I think with, with Vietnamese going back, there's just like, this sense yeah. of entitlement and just like, you know, it's, it's like yeah. an uncle Tom thing even. Right. And I think for the most part, it's been changing. We kind of like started to filter out the people who, who are just interns in America. and CEOs in Vietnam. <laughs> That could be the name of a podcast. Yeah. Oh, that'd be hilarious. Interviewing people like that. We usually call well, them losers back home. That's what I call them. <laughs> well, there's a there's a word for it, right? Can you explain to to our Taiwanese Japanese friend? Well, our audience, <laughs> the Viet Q. I mean, it's a it's not specifically derogatory. It, I think it's 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 evolved. It, I think it was when it first came, you know was used. It was a derogatory term that that locals would use against Vietnamese overseas who would come back. And now it just generally means Vietnamese overseas. I mean, that's a literal terminology. And um, I think a lot of Vietnamese who have come back have been trying to be more mindful of, like, not being arrogant. Like, I mean, Vietnam is doing much better in COVID than America is. There's a lot of things Vietnam is doing better than America is or other Western countries. And so we just have to recognize that, like, nothing is monolithic and, like, nothing comes, uh, you know, there's there's always bad aspects of everything. And you come to a country, you're not trying to improve on the bad aspects, but you're trying to emphasize the good aspects in a way. And so there has been a lot more kind of interaction and collaboration with, like, Vicu and, like, local Vietnamese. Like, whenever I work on a project... I do my best to hire locally to work with locals rather than I, uh, you know, I direct a lot of commercials and sometimes they want to fly over like a cinematographer from somewhere else. Then I'm like, why don't we hire someone local? Like, there's plenty of good talent that's that's native to, to Vietnam. Can't think of a better term than native, sorry. So 
Yeah, I think it's all about kind of going to a place and having an open mind. Not to like plug my film be water, but <laughs> that's kind of what Bruce Lee did. It's just like when he came to America, he wanted to kind of share his his Chinese culture, his Asian culture to the people around him, and he would absorb that culture as well. So it's always this you know, oscillation, this relationship between communities, individuals that make us a society. And sometimes we forget that we're too busy thinking about ourselves and thinking about like what is best for ourselves instead of thinking like what's best for humankind. Right. Are, are you making films in, in Vietnam then? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. What kind of films you're making? I mean, so like the film Ron that I mentioned that I produced is kind of like a neo-realist film. Uh, very, it's about a young lottery boy seller who he can't find his parents and he's looking for his parents. He's trying to sell these lottery tickets to, to kind of fund his, uh, his search. And he, he lives in this apartment complex that is being soon to be demolished because of the overdevelopment of, of Saigon and, and just, you know, the, the, the creeping in of capitalism in many ways. And I mean, that, that story was almost autobiographical to the, the director, writer. And I just wanted to make sure that we have stories that feel honest again and authentic and that are being told. A lot of Vietnamese films are either comedies or horror or very, it's very genre driven, very box office driven. And on, or on the other end of that spectrum, they're very art house and they're made for like a European film festival and they're not made for Vietnamese audiences. So with this film, I felt like it kind of you know, bridge that gap between like a film that's engaging and entertaining, right? It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. So I think I'm open to telling all types of stories in Vietnam as long as they feel honest and engaging. And, you know, I like to watch entertaining films too, but that's not the only thing I want to see. I want Vietnamese audiences to think of film as not just entertainment and something that they forget about as soon as they walk out of the theater, but something that sticks with them, that relates yeah. to them, their own experiences and their aspirations. Affects them, changes them. Um, you wear so many hats in the filmmaking process. Like You produce, you direct, you're a cinematographer as well. Is there, if you had to pick one part of this whole process, is there one that you're like, I have to always do this at least? Or is there a part, you'd like them all equally maybe, but if you had to pick one... <laughs> I mean, I think I enjoy directing because I can encapsulate all the different aspects into film as a director, right? It's kind of the buck stops with me. When I first started, I was very much into cinematography because I I came from a photography background, so that was kind of natural. But I think in the way that I direct, I make sure that my hand is in every aspect of cinematography, producing, editing, and that just gives me kind of the broad overview of the entire film. But I mean, I don't think I'm the person to direct every story, obviously. I think there are, are right fits for certain stories, and there's people come with a certain experience and a certain background that lends themselves to tell that story better. I think anyone could tell any... Not, I shouldn't say anyone can tell any story, but any story can come from anyone. <laughs> I'm trying to. I, I think I know what you're saying. I am quoting Ratatouille here or something. <laughs> like, not anyone no. can cook, but anyone can. Yeah, whatever. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. 
I do love Ratatouille. If you want to ask yeah. me, one of my favorite films. Someone, someone, Google Ratatouille. Real, real <laughs> if people want to find out more about Vietnamese cinema, and I, I would, I would expect that some of the audience hasn't really been exposed to Vietnamese cinema. What films would you recommend, Bao? I would say some of my favorite Vietnamese films are. The films of the French Vietnamese actor or uh, director Dan and Home. Cyclo is a really great film. S C Y C L O. Beautiful film. Stefan Gauger, who I mentioned earlier, his first film, Alan the Sparrow, is really amazing. Beautiful film. Hopefully, people get a chance to see Rom, which I think is kind of the same vein as those films. They're kind of very realistic films. I was just thinking about that too. There's this one film that came out last or a couple of years ago. It's called Song Lang. Yeah, Song Lang is a really beautiful film. Yeah, I think if you like watching like Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now, just kind of see Vietnam from a different perspective, the perspective of the people who live there and who had to stay there after the war ended. Hmm. I think that's those that are just to answer. Wu Bang's question too, like those are the stories I'm interested in. It's like the the lens of, of Vietnam is very much through the eyes of a white American soldier. If you think about how Vietnam has been depicted in Hollywood and like that's, there is obviously the issue with the idea of the single story and there's so many stories that are coming out of Vietnam and they don't necessarily directly deal with the war in any way. I remember I did a film a couple of years ago. I produced a film that was like a Vietnamese sci-fi film. And there's an audience member who is like, we screened it in Berkeley and they're like, Oh, why didn't you talk about like agent orange? <laughs> like <laughs> movie that in like 2030 Vietnam, like why does it have to, why do we have to talk about agent orange? Cause that's all we know about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was that for Nook? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is another great film that you were the cin- cinematographer for, right? I was the cinematographer and the producer on that film. There you go. So many hats. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, what brings you to LA now? Is it just like working on your deals that you can't talk about? Are you happy to be here? Or do you miss Vietnam a lot? Or I just wanted to sing karaoke with you guys, and then COVID happened. <laughs> <by the way. laughs> oh, so you went here to meet all the girls that Joe was going to introduce you to? Oh. No comment. <laughs> there you go. Now he's the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I felt after like deep diving into Bruce's story more and learning about Hollywood in the 1960s and seeing kind of this this moment in Hollywood today where, again, there is a lot of progress, but there is a lot of struggle ahead. I thought it was an important time for me as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, to try to help steer the conversation as much as I can. And I'm and I have a, I'm I'm very privileged in, in in being able to make films and being able to tell stories that reflect my experience or speak to, to issues that I want to talk about. And I felt like we were talking about mythology earlier. It's like, how do we help shape the new Asian American mythology, right? And 
Hollywood plays a very important role in that. And we don't like to think that way, but even in a time of COVID where, you know, we don't interact with people face to face, we don't get to see society. What we see is just at this point, people are streaming a lot. They're watching a lot of things on television. That's their interaction with society. That's their interaction with people that don't look like them or the people that do look like them. So that's why it's even more important that these depictions, these portrayals on screen are honest and, and come from a point of, of authenticity. And if I can help, you know, again, play a role in, 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 in trying to tell stories that people feel connected to, that people can empathize with, that people can relate to, then I feel like I, I'm doing something worthwhile. Totally. Now, now that you're back, and I guess I should preface this, preface this by saying, you know, I feel like every every time we have an Asian American film or show or something that comes out, it sort of pushes the movement forward, and there's a conversation, and then there's sort of waves that come from it. So now that you're here, I would imagine within a week's time, this is going to push that conversation forward. Are you in touch and talking to folks who have sort of in the Asian American Hollywood scene and talking about what what that means? for them and for you moving forward? Well, I, I was never, li- I never lived in LA, so I'm, it's not a welcome back. It's a welcome to, I guess. Right. Hmm. And I think again, being able to tell Bruce Lee's story was a huge responsibility, but I took that responsibility and I saw it as a privilege. Right. And that privilege has also opened up a lot in terms of like being able to talk to the Asian American community, the actors, actresses, not just of today, but of decades past, like Nancy Kwan, we, you know, I saw, we interviewed her for two, three hours. Wow. You know, she told me all these amazing things. Some things I don't have to tell you off the air in the karaoke room. I was, oh, I was going to say, just give us one tidbit that no other interview is getting from the making of this film. (laughs) Okay. No, I can't. Well, you can you can, you can tell you can tell us other stuff off air. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. No, you you're just telling it. the stories of like being an Asian American actress, right? Specifically, an actress in that time, and just the kind of things that she would hear from studio execs and. You know, it's the 60s in Hollywood. It's a crazy time to be in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and, and Asian as well, probably. Yeah. And Asian. Now you threw me all off. I'm like going in a tangent. Of, I, 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 was, I had this, it was supposed to be so much more meaningful. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I was able to talk to Nancy Kwan and talk to now, you know, as we're promoting Be Water, I have a lot of people, we're asking a lot of Asian American actors, actresses to talk about what Bruce Lee meant to them, right? Because the film is very much about Bruce Lee's life. It doesn't look so much about the impact and legacy. So we always knew that we would try to build the conversation about the film to be about the impact and the legacy and all the things that we can include in the film. And it's, it's scary to think that the, the conversations that I had with Nancy about the same struggles that she was having in the 1960s are the same struggles that are happening today. We like to think about progress. And I mean, it's not surprising for many of us, right? It's the same way that we talk about or, I mean, not the exact same way, but we talk about civil rights movement and like progress of like African Americans, and and we think that we're living in a post-racial world, but maybe yeah, we think about how progress is made, but there's the fight continues, and like 
you can't kind of give up on that. You can't be complacent. Like there's the systems that have been built for centuries that are made to kind of put us down. Right. And what are the ways that we can transform those things? Like with policing and brutality, like we need to change our leaders. We need to change the laws, right? The, the ways that we can immediately change policy. And, and by changing that, we immediately hopefully stop you know, these acts of brutality, we hopefully steer money towards education and, and prison reform and away from, from, you know, defense spending and all the things that we realized in the time of COVID, do we really need to spend that much money? Um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but everything's interrelated, right? An important, yeah, very important tangent though, yeah. So the way that we see ourselves on screen, it's not just about seeing ourselves on screen, it's about how other people see us. Right. We have to have a kind of holistic approach to things that the way I don't want to be just seen as a servant, as a villain, because I don't see myself that way. But I don't want other, you know, nationalities, cultures to see Asians as only that as well. And so thinking about, yeah, the cultural aspect the policy aspects, and then the leadership aspect, they all go hand in hand to kind of progressing things forward. After living in Vietnam for a while, and then sort of looking back, especially what's going on right now, like, what are your thoughts? Do you consider yourself like have an extra lens of being an outside looking back in what's going on here? And what are your friends in Vietnam saying about what's happening here in America? No, totally. I think... One of the reasons I wanted to get back to America is that I felt like I was like living too much in the bubble of Vietnam, like the safety bubble of being in Asia and like Trump was getting elected and, you know, it was over in Vietnam when Ferguson was happening. And I, I was living in a bubble, sadly. And because people, when I spoke to like my Vietnamese friends or like my then Vietnamese girlfriend, she didn't understand kind of the nuance of what was happening or not so much the nuance, but just what's understanding and happening. It's happening in America as well or at all, I should say. And like, why, why did I still love America when it was burning down, when, when someone like Trump was elected and I had to defend myself for being American. And I think, and it was, it was very, got, yeah, I, I like to say not to quickly to say like when I'm in Europe, I, I'm I'm called American, and I'm like I love being called American in Europe because like when I'm in in in, Viet, um, in the U.S., like no one would call me very American at all. Like they see me as Asian. So when I'm yeah traveling, it's like you're so American. I was like, yes, I feel this is this is the connection that I wanted to feel my whole life, being born and raised in America, and. Right. Um, and no, like, yeah, I felt like I was in this bubble when I was in, in Vietnam. And I, I I came from like kind of a more political and activist background. I worked on Obama's campaign in 2008. I, I was like going to be a human rights lawyer. I had all these aspirations to really be involved. And as I became a filmmaker, that kind of steered the type of films that I wanted to make. But when I was in Vietnam, yeah, I was just like kind of like living sadly a version of the expect life, but I was still, you know, I always had my finger on the pulse of what was happening in America, but I wasn't as active as I wanted to be. So I think being able to live in Amer in Vietnam and America, I'm very grateful of the things that do exist in America that don't exist in, in places like Vietnam. Like, 
freedom of expression to a certain extent that's, you know, guaranteed by the Constitution, it swings. It's a pendulum, right? Sometimes we're given more freedoms. Sometimes those freedoms feel a bit more uh, constrained. But I, I have that recognition that if we fight hard enough, we can get that freedom back. And in a place like Vietnam, in a place like that's run by one party, you feel like you're lost and hopeless because you've never been given that freedom in any form. So you don't even know that it exists. A lot of filmmakers, they self-censor themselves without because the censorship or the government has worked in ways that are, you know, they work, they're self-sufficient now, they're sustainable, like you're telling someone you can't do something and it's embedded in their head, they've been programmed to, to think that way and I think with America with the protests, we're always going to fight back against injustice and we will always complain for better or worse and sometimes we complain about really stupid things but sometimes we really stand up for things that we believe in and Give us an example no. <laughs> But that's yeah, that's the beauty of, of knowing that I am American and no one can take that away from me no matter what. As much as someone wants to tell me I'm not American, I know in my heart that I'm American. And that's never going to change because there are allies out there that will tell me that don't listen to that person. Don't, you know, even if it's a majority of Americans that think one way or another, it's like that's that's what forms all of America, this different this difference of opinions. And, um, you know, to bring it back to this, there's this anecdote I like to tell about feeling American and what it means to be American. When I was working on the Obama campaign, you know, there's a lot of volunteers from all over the world that would just come. They would pay their own ticket and they would fly to America and they would like volunteer at a, at a battleground state. And they had have no, seemingly no stake in it because they couldn't vote. And there was this one Greek woman who she was, she was like half Greek, half British, and she was living in Belgium, but she never felt like when she moved to like, she had lived in London for a bit and she never felt like she could become British, right? Because there's just like, it's almost that nationality, there's like an ethnicity that's tied to that for centuries, right? But with America, for better or for worse, it's a it's a new country. It's it's an ever changing country. It's a, the idea of America. You know, we can get into the weeds of of Native Americans and what happened before, like America was born. But if you think of America as a country, as an experiment, you can anyone can come to America and become American because it's evolving constantly, and it doesn't have that same sense of truth. In the way that, like, Britain is Britain. Like, you can't become British. You're always going to follow that old ethnicity that, that followed you, that nationality that followed you. But eventually, you know, we'll lose that hyphen. And, I mean, I like to sometimes lose that hyphen. But I also like to own that idea of being Vietnamese American, of being Asian American. And that's another beautiful thing about America. Like, in France, like, you lose that you don't, you're not Vietnamese, you're French, you're not French Vietnamese, you're not Vietnamese French, you become French. Like, they're so, like, about being this idea of French. But at the same time, they don't really accept, like, I don't think, like, a Moroccan French or a Vietnamese French person in the same way. This might get me in a lot of trouble. Because racism. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> racism, yeah. yeah. Hashtag, hashtag racism. Yeah. But that's what, it's like, the people who think America's stagnant, don't know shit about America. Hmm. That's like what I like to say. I feel like I want to salute you right now. 
<laughs> yeah, I kind of want to talk. The last time I wanted to cry like this was 2008 and 2012. Thanks for listening, Yellow Parlors. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts. Have a comment or question you'd like to share with us? Call and leave a voicemail at 8452-YELLOW. That's 845-293-5509. Or email us at yellowperilpod at gmail.com. Or drop us a comment on our Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I feel like if you have any questions for Bao that you'd like us to get him, we'll totally send those on and maybe we'll have him back or get those answers from you, Bao. Yeah, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> if we get any, don't worry. <laughs> Again, low stakes. <laughs> If you enjoy the show and want to I think I'm a karaoke. Yeah, exactly. There you go. If you enjoy the show and want to support us, please consider subscribing, following, leaving us a review, and supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yellow peril. When you support us on Patreon, you also receive rewards, which include stickers, mugs, t-shirts, or even a guest spot on the show. That's how Bao got on. No, just kidding. This episode was brought to you. That's how I got my Bruce Lee gig. <laughs> yeah. ESPN's Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This episode was also brought to you with the help of our editor, John Oriarte. And before we go to end the show, it's our karaoke closer in honor of Bao's visit and his film, The Water. We're going to sing. Is there a song in the, in, in the documentary that, that's prominent that you want to sing? No, it's all original score. Oh, no, everybody wants to be a kung fu fighter kind of oh, thing. God. Or like, yeah. or you are the last dragon. <laughs> it's all ghost movie. You didn't like that movie? Oh, the, uh, the last dragon, um, the da 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 Or the show Or I'm thinking, yeah. oh yeah, the last dragon. What's a good song that we could sing? What was that actor? You have seen that movie, right, pal? But which one's the last dragon? With show Bruce Leroy. Oh, <laughs> So much of this Dane. <laughs> He's like, what? Shame. Your face is just like. Oh. Oh. You guys want to sing? You can pick a song and we can sing it, but you should try to jump in at a certain point. How about Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with? Love it. Love it. <laughs> there you go. So it's just going to be a, a screaming Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with? Do they show up in the film? Well, Riza is possibly doing a song for us. Wait, in a week? Really? Yeah. Can we put that in the pod? You heard it here first. So, uh, B Water will be playing on June 7th, Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, on ESPN. And if you don't have ESPN, it's playing on ESPN Plus right after the broadcast. And if you don't have ESPN Plus, you can get a seven day free trial just to watch B Water. Hell yeah. An exclusive. All right. You guys can just do the chorus if you want. The chorus is the best part. Yeah, we should just do the chorus. Woo take clad ain't nothing fun. How about Frank Sinatra's My Way, which was Bruce Lee's favorite song? Holy shit, that's amazing. That's amazing. There you go. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain I've lived. <laughs> I don't think Fubei ba- doesn't know how the song goes. <laughs> Keep going. I've traveled each and every highway and more 
much more than this. I did it my Amazing. Thanks for having me. Wow. Wow, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. That was fun. Did you have fun? Wasn't that the best interview you've ever had for this so far? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. All right, I'm going to stop.